Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Hole 13 by M.D. Vickers Two men, middle-aged and extremely intelligent, were sat at a table in the Crossguns pub, two pints of lager in front of them. They were discussing time travel, whether or not it could ever be possible to move back into the past or forward into the future. Both men were in unshakable agreement that the present was all anyone had. A second or two from now, one or both of them could suffer a fatal cardiac arrest. The future was uncertain. Obviously, they had a rough idea of it. The next pub, more drinks, the pubs after, then food somewhere. But fate, for they both believed unshakably in that as well, would decide the outcome. The idea that their night was already mapped out, both men found intriguing. Dr. Patrick Smythe remarked to his colleague, Dr. James Weatherborn, that everyone in this pub at this time were coordinated in positions that had already been determined. Each dart thrown at the dartboard was slotting itself into a preordained area of the board. Every movement that people acted out, every word they spoke, had been decided beforehand. Dr. Patrick Smythe threw in a deliberately naive remark by way of asking would it be possible to alter your course of fate by, say, him getting up from his chair and leaving the cross guns earlier than he'd planned to. Dr. James Weatherborn returned that everything was fated, including changes of mind, plans, etc. He also added that if he did leave now, and a lorry mounted the curb and killed him, there was no way he could have avoided his destiny, as he would never have known that would happen. Dr. Patrick Smythe then said, what if he had left the pub at the time they had originally planned? Would the same lorry have mounted the same section of curb where he would have been traversing at the same time of his earlier exit? Dr. James Weatherborn was uncertain of this. If his colleague had been fated to die by the lorry, the vehicle would have obviously struck him, and the resulting damage, again predetermined, would be created. Bus stop sign bent over, fence ploughed through, etc. However, if at the exact time of impact with the curb, his colleague was predisposed somewhere else, the resulting carnage would be very much different. In conclusion, they both decided that the lorry wouldn't have mounted the curb at all, would not even have been driving down that road if Dr. Patrick Smythe hadn't exited the pub at that earlier time. The lorry driver would simply have taken a different course of action, governed by fate. They both agreed that there were a myriad of holes in the theory, yet for now the statement would stand up, until other ideas had been introduced into the conversation. Dr. Patrick Smythe then asked Weatherborn why would the outcome of the accident have been different if he hadn't been stood there? Dr. James Weatherborn stroked his chin thoughtfully, before saying that, had his colleague been stood there at the precise moment, the driver may have attempted to swerve, failed and struck him, but veered on a slightly different course too, if there had been no one stood there at all. Smythe then said that if the lorry steering had malfunctioned, swerving would have been out of the question. Consequently, the line of destruction wouldn't have been all that dissimilar. At this stage, they were joined by Dr. Fred Farramond, who sat down at their table, 
placing a pint of Guinness in front of him. Both Weatherborn and Smythe decided to abandon the lorry scenario temporarily, as both agreed it was getting a little complex. They agreed instead to pursue their time travel discussion, bringing in Dr. Farriman for his views. Before they did resume their discussion, Dr. Farriman put over his view, having heard the tail end of their last conversation, that he believed everyone's fate line worked in conjunction with each other, and that the result of an individual's course of action affected that of another person's, who was linked by destiny to that person. Smythe and Weatherborn both said that they fully supported that thesis, and looked forward to Farriman's contribution to their ensuing time travel theories. Fred Farriman took a mammoth swallow of Guinness before speaking. He was an organized and tidy man, and this was reflected in the manner in which he spoke. Just to lay the foundations of the conversation, let me start by saying that this is the present. He emphasized the statement with a sweep of his arm. Time travel involves either a journey into the past, and thus before present events, or into the future, after here and now, as it were. The present is a direct result of the past, not the future. The future hasn't happened, the past has. If there was such a concept as time travel, and this I do very much doubt, the same principle would apply to both past and future. That is, nothing whatsoever could be changed. Referring back to your previous discussion regarding fate, the destiny line can in no way be altered. You would merely be a passive observer of events, uh, nothing more. Both Weatherborn and Dr. Smythe nodded their heads in agreement at this stage. So what you're saying is that if you were to travel back in time to, say, five years ago, you could only observe yourself carrying out the same actions you underwent, and not actually live that period of time again as yourself, the traveller. The interesting question was put to Farramond by James Weatherborn, who had just drained his glass. The conversation was put on hold, as Weatherborn visited the bar again to get a round in. He arrived back a couple of minutes later, with a tray adorned with three pints and three bags of roasted peanuts. Dr. Farriman then proceeded to answer the question. If you travelled back in time by five years, as you say, there could be no interaction. People would uh, walk through you. You would walk through things. You couldn't be seen. To be visible would provoke glances and comments which weren't scheduled. People would alter their courses to walk round you and step to one side for you. And that, without a shadow of a doubt, could not happen. As regards yourself, you would be seeing you as you were then, five years ago, following an identical behavioural pattern that led you up to the present. Any mistakes you made would be relived. You, as the traveller, looking on with the benefit of hindsight, would be helpless to prevent yourself making these errors. These mistakes, anyway, were what crafted you into the person and moulded the circumstances surrounding you of the present day. He took another well-deserved swallow of Guinness, and tore open his peanuts, flinging a handful into his mouth. That was excellently put, Fred. Now what about travelling into the future? This time it was Patrick Smythe who put forth the question. Ah, now, that is a very different matter indeed. You're talking about a journey into the unknown, into the unhappened, as it were. 
Future travel, as past is near impossible, is impossible. It could never, ever be done. Take this chilling scenario as an example. You leap forward in time, say 20 years. You see yourself as you would be 20 years on, hit by a car and killed. Traveling back to the present with this knowledge in mind, you would make an absolute mockery of fate by avoiding the fatal accident on that fateful day. I mean, gentlemen, you would hardly take the same steps that you knew led up to your death, would you? Another less disturbing scenario, yet still as effective, is the National Lottery. So you went forwards in time to the result for that week, memorized them, then returned to the present and crossed the numbers off on your sheet. The day of the draw comes round by way of natural course. Your balls obviously dispense themselves, and you've won. Except you couldn't. Why? Simply because the person or people who had legitimately won would be receiving depleted winnings due to your tamperings with fate. You would be incorporated into the jackpot, and you weren't fated to be. Frustrating as it sounds, you couldn't do it. This again exemplifies why there could never be forward journeys in time. I mean, you just wouldn't voyage back to the present having seen the winning numbers, and not write them down and thus enter them, would you? Dr. James Weatherborn and Dr. Patrick Smythe both nodded again in total agreement. All three then decided to visit the Grey Mare for last orders, after draining their drinks and munching the remainder of their peanuts. As they exited, Dr. Farriman told them about a haunting he had actually witnessed, if they were interested in hearing it. The other doctors nodded their heads simultaneously, whilst verbally expressing their enthusiasm for this next conversation. "'Come on, then,' returned Farramond, and they headed up to the mare, which luckily wasn't too far away, as the weather was rather blustery, blowing fine drizzle at them as they pulled up collars and thrust hands deep into coat pockets, with their heads bent towards the wet pavement. They stepped into the welcoming warmth of the grey mare with undisguised relief. The pub was split into two sections. On the right was the pool table, dartboard, karaoke, etc. On the left was the quieter side. It was the latter they headed to, after getting in their drinks. It was fairly busy, but they found a nice table in the corner, and headed over. So, Fred, Weatherborn remarked, as they all sat down and removed outer garments. A ghost story, huh? Fred took a good gulp of Guinness and placed the glass down with infinite care on the mat. Not so much a ghost story as an account of a very macabre incident that happened ten years ago. He looked a little unsettled all of a sudden, and took in more Guinness. Very bizarre, he uttered, almost to himself. I think offloading it after all this time may actually do me some good, to be honest. Just hope you two are okay with it. <laughs> he laughed sardonically, and almost drained his glass. Smythe was up and out of his seat instantly to get the next round in. Three whiskey chasers now added to the tally. Get these down, you Fred. No rush, in your own time. No time like the present, he returned. As the present is all we may have. This reference to their previous discussion was not lost on Smythe and Weatherborn. Farriman chugged his whiskey down and almost seemed to grimace. 
He let out a whoosh of air and shook his head quickly. Oh, a while since I've had that stuff. <laughs> Never fully got used to the taste. Does the job, though, of that, there's no doubt. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand before taking a sip of Guinness. Well, here goes. There were three of us. Me, John McCormack, and Sid Turtington. We went on a golfing holiday to Portugal. Long weekend type of thing. He was turning the beer mat his pint was on so it was level. Probably wasn't even aware he was doing it. He took another swallow. Everything was going great. We got quite merry on the plane, Sid getting a bit amorous with one of the air stewardesses. He had a big swatch of ginger hair and was always grinning. <laughs> got a bit irritating after a while, that grin, but you couldn't help loving him. He gazed across the room, sadness casting a grim shadow on his face. It was John's fiftieth, so we decided on a three-day golfing bender. Beer bottles and golf bags, you know the drill. We stepped off the plane, and it was hot. Too hot for me. I began to sweat immediately. Sid was still doing his thing, grinning at everyone, ranting nineteen to the dozen. We headed to the hotel, the cases feeling even heavier with the heat. Checked in, went to our own rooms, and did our own thing till dinner. Good seafood it was, or oh, the best I'd tasted. The bar was next. Sid was well gone, but he was on peak form. He gazed introspectively into his glass and drained the remainder in there. Is it my round? he asked, snapping himself out of his reverie. Weatherborn motioned for him to stay where he was and got up. Another whiskey, Fred? he inquired. Farriman considered, but only briefly. Aye, just one more. Cheers. Weatherborn nodded amiably and approached the barren bar. After immediate service, he was back, nuts included. They could hear the rain on the window, sounding like it was coming down harder now. Fred took his whiskey and tipped it down in one again, not grimacing as much this time. Right. Where was I? Patrick Smythe brought him up to speed, and the narration resumed from that point. So we had drinks, and I remember thinking what a godsend the aircon in there was. Eventually, we both ended up carrying Sid to his room, as he professed his undying love for us both. He collapsed onto the bed and was asleep almost immediately. John and I left him snoring away and went to our own rooms, wishing each other good night before an early start in the morning. Fred had some more liquid refreshment and let out a long sigh. I'm waffling a bit, aren't I? I should get straight to the meat of the story. James Weatherbourne shook his head emphatically after consulting his watch. Absolutely no rush, Fred. Plenty time. Tell it how you want to. Patrick Smythe echoed the sentiment with a brisk nod of his head. In the background, they could hear the soft thud of darts landing in the board, and the clack of pool balls interspersed with muted conversation. Fred let out a cough covered by a balled-up fist before resuming. His eyes were also a little bloodshot. I remember the following morning. The breakfast was divine, but I can't actually remember what it was, <laughs> he said with a chortle. Damned if I can. Me and John were tucking in heartily, 
when Sid came down, that ginger hair all tussled, looking like death. Fuck breakfast. Think I need a hair of the dog, he said. It always amazed me how at forty-eight he still had that twenty-year-old shock of perfectly ginger hair. No hint of grey, no sign of recedence or baldness. I was going through a bit of a crisis with my thinning barnet at that point, so I envied him in a way. He came over with a bottle of Lucasade, which I suspected contained a little more than just Lucasade. He asked what the plan for the day was. I told him we'd be finishing breakfast, getting the beers in, then bus ride to the golf course. You could tell it was going to be a broiler of a day. All three took good chugs of beer, as if the thought of a broiler of a day had suddenly made them thirsty. Weatherborn tore open his bag of peanuts in addition. Some drunken shouts carried through from outside. Fred waited for them to subside before resuming. I remember that bus journey as being the most uncomfortable one I'd ever been on. People crammed together as it was so full, and some were stood up. Sweat ran down my back in torrents. Even Sid wasn't his usual boisterous self. Thankfully, it wasn't too long before we reached our destination. We spilled off with sighs of relief, even though it was still roasting outside of there. John and I were holding the bags of beers. All three of us headed over to the clubhouse, the map we had not really needed. None of us professed to actually be any good at golf, but it just seemed like a good way to pass the afternoon. Inside the clubhouse, it was lovely and cool with the air conditioning. We walked over to the desk to hire our golf bags. Sid pulled a cap off a stand and jammed it over his hair. Didn't even pay for it. Fred gave a sad little laugh before resuming. A bloke appeared from the back, slicked back hair, portly, pockmarked face. He smiled, showing a few gold teeth, and spoke broken but at least decipherable English. We chose our golf bags, the ones with wheels. No way were we lugging them round on our shoulders. Paid our money, then headed off to the first tee. He never told us anything we should look out for. Nothing. It was really strange. Really strange. Fred finished his pint and stood up, swaying a touch. Right. Off to the gents, then I'll get the next round in on the way back. Same again with chasers. The other two nodded and thanked him as Fred drunkenly weaved his way to the toilets. Any idea what's going to happen? Smythe asked of Weatherborn as they both drained their own drinks. Yeah, it's going to piss all over the floor. <laughs> Weatherborn returned and they both brayed laughter. Seriously, though? No, I haven't, but I'm certainly intrigued. Me too, Smythe returned and watched as Faramond made his way to the bar, seeming to be struggling with his fly. He ordered and carefully came back with a tray laden with the beverages. After drinks were grabbed eagerly, Fred Faramond began to resume his account. Right, so, we got playing. As you can guess, balls flew everywhere, beer was chugged almost instantly. The sun blared down on us mercilessly. It was a riot, though. He laughed and took a big swill of his pint. Right. I really want to get to the meat of this story. He'd gone very serious again. We had scorecards, but after the first three holes, we just stopped marking them. 
There wasn't much point as our inebriated swings were knocking them everywhere. We got to the twelfth hole with only a few beer bottles left and enthusiasm dwindling slightly. We decided to call it quits after the next couple. It was just so hot. Sid kept removing his cap, ruffling his drenched hair, then replacing it at jaunty angles. We tapped in at the twelfth and looked around for the next hole, which wasn't immediately obvious. Then John spotted a narrow, overgrown path, which looked like the only option. We stumbled through it, golf bags banging together, and came out onto the strangest piece of golf course I'd ever seen. The fairway was a hideous yellow and very narrow. We could see the hole not that far away, and what looked like a bunker to the left of it. Sid exclaimed that the greenkeeper should be shot before whacking his ball off a hastily placed tee. It veered to the left and looked like it landed straight in the bunker. Fucking marvelous, he exclaimed, with a head shake, before trudging off to check out the situation down there. I got my ball ready and looked back up, just as John voiced, Where's the bugger gone? after tipping back the remainder of his bottle. I looked down the shimmering stretch of grotesque yellow and couldn't see anyone, no one at all. Maybe he's in that bunker, I ventured. Must be a bloody deep one, though. We left our bags there and began to walk quickly over, still not seeing him anywhere. Both Smythe and Weatherborn were staring transfixed at the paling face of Fred Farramond as he took another monster swallow of Guinness. We got got to the bunker, if you could call it that. It was deep. I remember there was no noise at all apart from mine and John's breathing. Not even any breeze, birdsong, nothing. There was something in the middle of the crater. From where we were, it looked like a cap. John spoke in a very bewildered voice at the side of me. What the hell's going on? We need to go in there. Is that Sid's cap? I agreed, with only a mild reluctance. This obviously needed investigating. We made our way down incredibly carefully, and it was rock solid, not sand. We both struggled to keep our grip and ended up skittering down, holding on to each other, barely staying upright. We regained our composure, and... Fred finished his pint and asked the other two if they wanted another whiskey, as he certainly needed one for the conclusion. Smythe was up immediately. On it, Fred. Be right back. He swiveled to the bar and got the whiskies, plus a final pint each. Fred reached for his scotch and tipped it back in one before letting out a loud gasp, followed by an, Oh, oof, going to be the Gaviscon tonight, but this is an exception. He paused a moment before concluding the final part of his story. So, we looked down and recognized immediately it was Sid's cap with the Nike logo on it. I bent to lift it up, and underneath... Underneath was hair. Ginger hair poking out of this... this concrete. My bowels filled up with what felt like ice-cold water. John reached down and pulled at the hair. No give. It's... it's Sid. He's in there. We can't get him out. He's entombed in there. He was gabbling a little hysterically. It must have been like, what, quicksand? 
and it's just baked hard and buried him alive. We both began to shout his name over and over. Nothing. I was looking around frantically, but of course there was nothing we could do. Looking at those straggly corkscrews of hair filled me with an inchoate dread and huge sense of despair and loss. So what? He's gone in here and sunk down and it's turned into some sort of solid granite? What the hell? We need to get out, maybe get some help, although Christ knows what. We managed to eventually get out, frantically scrabbling after several tumbles backwards. Gasping and puffing, we ran to the peculiar entrance we'd come in through and hauled our asses the long route back to the clubhouse. Several stops necessary, as it was by now the hottest point of the day. The welcoming coolness of the clubhouse hit us immediately. The guy was behind the desk, sorting through some paperwork with an air of innocence in complete contrast to what we just witnessed. Hey, help. We need help. Back on hole 13. Our friend is stuck in a bunker. I was aware of how ludicrous this sounded, but couldn't think of any other way to put it. The proprietor jerked his head up instantly. Hole 13? There is no hole 13. It must be another hole. Number 13. The developers were very superstitious people. They didn't design one. Never. John said to him, Come, we'll show you. Come really quick. He was incredibly reluctant, but our urgency persuaded him. We ran back out into the boiling heat of the day all the way back. Could we find that passage? The answer is no, gentlemen. We never found it. All we found was a wide pathway surrounded by bracken leading straight onto Hole 14. Hole 13 had simply vanished from existence. And then, of course, we had the proprietor saying, See, I told you. See, I told you. John and I hadn't a clue what to do or say. We looked again and again, but it was clear that the only fairway alongside twelve was fourteen. So that was it. That's my tale. Sid was gone. We never saw him again. And the most macabre of circumstances. Do I feel better having told it? Maybe a little, but that's because I'm rather intoxicated. Tomorrow it will be there again, haunting, lingering, a baffling mystery that will probably never be solved. Weatherborn and Smythe were at a loss for words. What was there to say? It had clearly affected them both, but who wouldn't be affected by such an account? They all drank up. It was 12.32 a.m. Well, gents... Fred finally resumed. Fancy grabbing some food on the way home? Or have you lost your appetite somewhat? Smythe and Weatherborn stood up. They both shrugged on their coats, now bone dry, looked at each other and nodded. Aye, let's go to the chippy, James agreed as Fred also began shrugging on his coat. They said their goodbyes to the landlord and barmaid before exiting. At least the rain had stopped. As they crossed the road, a weaving Fred Farriman suddenly erupted slurringly. I might be going, going back there to Port... Portugal next month, if your fancies maybe some golf. Try and... try and find that bloody hole again. Get Sid back with us. Great bloke he was. Great bloke. 
James and Patrick glanced at each other, before grabbing hold of Fred, who was staggering diagonally away from Charlie's. It seemed the fresh air had rapidly heightened his inebriation. I think we'll probably take a rain check on that for now, Fred old bean, Smythe returned, not without some mild amusement, and they entered the steamy sauna of the chippy, and waited to place their orders.